Hi, this is Dan. Just wanted to ask you to please stick around after the show for some important messages about upcoming Hardcore History episodes. It's history. If we dig deep in our history and our doctrine, and remember that we are not descended from fearful men. It's Hardcore History. There's a certain pattern that human history seems to have. And we're all aware of it, aren't we? We all know that since human civilization first arose, there's been a pattern of it rising to some level of grandeur and then collapsing eventually into a dark age and then rising up again to sort of repeat the process. If we're optimistic, sometimes we like to think that every time human civilization arises anew out of a dark age that it reaches a greater height than before. Maybe that's true, maybe it's not, but we all realize that there's sort of this bunny-hop rhythm to history. Two steps forward, one step back, right? But as I was doing the research for this particular show, it struck me yet again how much we consider ourselves exempt from this cyclical rhythm of history. We all know that civilization rises to a certain height and then collapses into a dark age, but we never imagine that we're going to be a part of that. Somehow, if you wanted to compare human civilizations to software versions, maybe the world that first rose up in Mesopotamia and those people who first started building cities and first started writing down history, maybe that's human civilization 1.0, if we wanted to say it that way. And by now we're at human civilization like 5.5. And there's something in our heads or our DNA that just tells us that there aren't going to be any more versions, no more patches, no more upgrades. This is the final world, right? But I'm doing my research for this show, and nothing stands out more plainly to me that that's how people always think. All of the other human ancestors of ours who lived through these bunny hop cycles of history thought they were the final world. And most of them understood that whole cycle thing just like we do. And the first time I ever thought about this, you know, the fact that we always assume our world's the last world, was when I was watching a science fiction film. I was about 10 years old, and it was a famous movie, but not very good. But if you could get through the movie, it was really worth it for the last scene, because the last scene blew my mind so completely that it has been permanently altered. And whenever I study the far far flung past it occurs to me how much that film changed the whole way I view it because the film was the planet of the apes you may remember it starred Charlton Heston the storyline was that a couple of earth astronauts had crash landed on a distant planet inhabited by apes and the whole movie is these astronauts trying to escape the apes and at the very end of the movie Charlton Heston is the only one who gets away he steals a horse he's riding a horse on the beach and he turns a corner at the beach where another big, long stretch of beach now opens up to his vision. And in the final two minutes of the film, you're confronted by an image that starts a snowball rolling down in your mind, toppling dominoes all through your brain. 
and I've been thinking about the ramifications ever since. Charlton Heston sees a statue in the distance buried in the sand. Just the bust, the head, the neck sticking out of the sand with the surf crashing against it, and the arm holding a torch sticking out at a angle. And you instantly realize that you're looking at the Statue of Liberty. And then you instantly realize that this hasn't been some distant world this astronaut has been on this whole time. He's been on Earth in the far-flung future. And the part that blows your mind is when you see the Statue of Liberty in the surf, all of a sudden you're confronted with that thing that I think your DNA somewhere protects you against. You're confronted with the idea that your own society might not always be here and that we might not be the final version of human civilization. There's something I think that we all know that we're all going to die, that no one here gets out alive, as the old saying goes. But I think we assume as human beings that our society will continue somehow. Our civilization will live on. We can't imagine future archaeologists coming in with their tools and excavating our skyscrapers and opening up our tombs and trying to figure out who we were. And yet, that's how it's always been, right? Well, that brings me back to what I wanted to talk about today, which is what I like to call the very, very old world. Now, it's my own dating system. It's wonderfully imprecise, but it's easy to envision. There's the old world, there's the very old world, and then there's the very, very old world. And to me, the very, very old world starts at the beginning of recorded history, when people first start writing things down and building cities, and ends depends on which day of the week you catch me on this. I'm a little inconsistent. But usually I date the ending to the fall of Nineveh. And the fall of Nineveh is maybe the greatest event in history that almost no one knows about. If you were going to rank the amazing historical moments, you know, the top 20, I think, of all time, I'm biased, but I'd put the fall of Nineveh in there. And in your mind, you should consider it like the fall of Berlin in the Second World War times a thousand. Or, you know, Darth Vader and the Death Star blowing up. Or Sauron from the Lord of the Rings being, you know, thrown down and a new world arising. Because if human civilization 2.0 ended with the Assyrian world, then the fall of Nineveh is the crash that mandated a new version. And it also brought an end to the dominance of one of the great peoples in history who have never been a great people since. And if you look at human history, there are two kinds of peoples on the world stage. There are the peoples that are ever-present. An example of that would be the Chinese civilizations. They have their high points and their low points, but China's always been a factor, always been a player on the world stage through thousands of years of history. Egypt, same thing. Then there are nations that seem to have a glory-filled golden era and then fall down to obscurity. I mean, think of the Mongol people today. They seem a people on the periphery of the world stage, don't they? Not very important in the grand scheme of diplomatic affairs anymore. But those seemingly backward people living in a seemingly poor, out-of-the-way culture, ruled most of the known world for a long time. Well, it depends on what you consider to be a long time. Because 
for the couple hundred years that the Mongols were a major people on the world stage, that would have been a blink of an eye to the ancient Assyrian people. And the Assyrians were what I really wanted to focus on as part of the very, very old world, because you start with that dramatic story of the fall of Nineveh, and you work your way backwards, and you try to explain the drama of what it meant that Nineveh fell, and you can't do that without giving the background of the people who built that city and the people that were on the losing side. That people was a people more like the Mongols than the Chinese. A people who are, if they're even around anymore, are a tiny little shadow of who they used to be. And who they used to be were the greatest power in the world, and they were the greatest power in the world for a very long time. You see, the very, very old world, if you want to call it a software version of human history, lasted longer than any of the versions since. I mean, just to give you a time frame idea, if you wanted to date the beginning of our modern world today, you know, where does our modern world begin? How do you date it? Well, maybe if you're generous, you date it to the Renaissance, which would make our modern civilization about five or 600 years old since the last dark age. Well, Assyria and its world was three to five times older than that. Depends on where you date it. The Assyrian records have unbroken lines of kings dating all the way back to the 2300s BCE. Nineveh fell around 600 BCE, so you can see how long those people were a factor on the world stage. And to understand their place in the very, very old world, think of the Imperial Romans. Now think of them meaner. And that's not a bad image to start when you talk about the Assyrians. First of all, the Assyrians are controversial. Let's understand something. They're a fascinating people. They're the biblical era Nazis, depending on who you believe. And when I was growing up, that was the image that was usually conveyed to beginning history students. It gets a little more complex when you start delving a little deeper. But the initial reaction you have to the Assyrians is the grotesqueness of their evil. These are a people who were so seemingly proud of the terrible things they did that one of the major things they left to our society, you know, their version of the Statue of Liberty sticking out of the sand, were these carvings these things they call reliefs, right? These carvings in stone of their armies at war and the punishments that their kings meted out to people who had rebelled against the king. One historian said that the Assyrian war reliefs have no parallel anywhere in human history. And when you look at them, and I encourage you to go online or pull out a history book and take a look at some of the Assyrian reliefs, what you're seeing is genocide in some cases and you are seeing a people who are publicizing it and if the reliefs weren't enough you have the narration by the Assyrian kings to go along with it and they will boast of the things that they do 
And they all sound as brutal as the next one. You never get an Assyrian king that's nice and friendly and then you get another bad one. They are all like Adolf Hitler when you read what they write about themselves. Listen to what Asher Nasserpal, who was probably the most brutal of the Assyrian kings, had to say about how he handled a little rebellion he had to deal with. He said, I built a pillar over the city gate and I flayed all the chiefs who had revolted and I covered the pillar with their skin. Some of them I walled up within the pillar. Some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes. Others I bound to stakes around the pillar. And I cut the limbs of the officers, of the royal officers who had rebelled. Many captives from among them I burned with fire, and many I took as living captives. From some I cut off their noses, their ears, and their fingers. Of many I put out the eyes. I made one pillar of the living, and another of heads. And I bound their heads to tree trunks around the city. Their young men and maidens I burned in the fire. Twenty men I captured alive, and I put them and walled them in the wall of my palace. The rest of their warriors I consumed with thirst in the desert of the Euphrates. That's a nice way of Asher Nasserpal saying he left about 20,000 people out in the desert to die of thirst. This is from Asher Banipal, hundreds of years later. After defeating the Elamites in battle, in a description that is bloody beyond compare, he talks about what he did to the country. The tombs of their earlier and later kings who did not fear Ashur and Ishtar, my lords, and who had plagued my fathers, I destroyed, I devastated, I exposed to the sun. Their bones I carried off to Assyria. I laid restlessness upon their shades. I deprived them of food offerings and of water. He says, for a distance of a month and 25 days journey, I devastated the provinces of Elam. Salt and prickly plants I scattered over them. The dust of their cities I gathered together and took to Assyria. The noise of the people, the tread of cattle and sheep, the glad shouts of rejoicing I banished from its fields. You never get a humanitarian, Assyrian king. That's what they all sound like. And when you look at the reliefs, they're grotesque. And a lot of these reliefs were in places like the palaces. So that if you were coming to have an audience with the king and you were in the waiting room, this is what you saw. And that's something that when you get a little farther along in history, is pointed out to you. That there's a purpose to this stuff. Because it's hard to understand why these Assyrian kings glorified this stuff so much? What were they so proud of? Well, some historians will say, a lot of historians will say, that these were practical things. You see, the Assyrians were the first real empire in human history. Every empire that has followed in their footsteps has adopted many, if not all, of the strategies and techniques the Assyrians first developed to govern and administrate empire. And one of the techniques the Assyrians perfected was terrorism. The Assyrians had a policy of terror, and that's how they kept their subjects in line. And if you think about it, if you look at the limitations they had, it makes some sort of sense, doesn't it? The Assyrians had a lot of little, smaller provincial armies they could call upon to put down minor rebellions and such, but basically they had one major field army. And a lot of times in their history, it was basically their farmers and merchants who they had to actually take away from their jobs and their farms to get into the army. It was a lot of effort to get the army into the field. Well, if you had a couple of rebellions going on, 
in your empire in different places, it put an extreme strain on the state. And so the strategy that the Assyrians seem to use is to make examples of anybody who rebelled against them that were so brutal and so terrible and then to publicize it in every way you could that it would discourage anyone else from even thinking about it. It was a, it was a contemplated and organized policy of terror. Imagine being the governor, maybe, of one of these you know, troublesome cities that the Assyrian king had had problems with in the past, and he summons you to an audience with him, and while you're in the waiting room, you get to see these carvings of what happened to the people who were in your position who misbehaved. One of the carvings that most upset me personally was one that they had, I believe it was a, of a governor named Dananu. And this guy had rebelled in one of his cities, and the Assyrians had carved a picture of him before his horrible execution and torture with the severed head of one of his co-conspirators hanging around his neck, being spat on and beaten by Assyrian people who are walking by him. Eventually his head would be put on a pole outside the capital city of Nineveh. And a lot of the historians will tell you that this was not deliberate cruelty as much as it was a policy to control this first major empire in world history. And yet, so many things make you think the Assyrians enjoyed it. When Ashurbanipal was having problems with the Elamite king and he sent his army into Elam to deal with it, the army came back with the Elamite king's severed head. Assyrian history, by the way, rife with it you know, the cutting off of heads for some reason. And Ashurbanipal had it hung from one of his trees in his garden while he feasted with his wives so he could look at it. When Ashurnasirpal II had his captives' skin pulled off their bodies while they were still alive, he made sure they set the throne right up there where he could watch. And as I've had discussions with my friends who will say that this was a calculated policy of terrorism to make sure that the subject people didn't revolt, I always point out that Ashurnasirpal didn't have to watch. Would have had the same effect if he was in the other room, you know, playing backgammon, right? But he wanted to watch. And that's the whole question about whether the whole empire system was evil. A lot of people will point to the famous quote that was written during Roman times about the Roman Empire. That Rome creates a wasteland and calls it peace. Well, the Assyrians did the same thing. A lot of historians will say, look... These empires certainly were brutal, and that's how you maintained the unity, and you kept them together. At the same time, that unity created the conditions where civilization could move forward. The trade routes, the stability, the protection from outside barbarian attacks, all this stuff was crucial to getting us to where we are now. Sort of a yin and yang approach to the question of evil versus empire, because then the other historians will say something to the effect of, well, sure, but imagine you're one of those Celtic peoples whose civilization was the victim of Roman expansion, and then ask them how much the Roman protection of the trade routes and the commerce and all that benefited Celtic civilization. And I think one of the things you can do with that argument is say that the Assyrian policy of terror gave them an empire that lasted through its ups and downs, one must say. The Assyrians were like the stock market. I mean, they would have periods where they would have great kings and be in great shape, and then they would plummet to very low levels and then come back up with more dynasties. 
And yet what they did was so extreme hate among their neighbors. This terrorism policy had its pluses and minuses. But when the neighbors finally got their chance, and it took a long time, they destroyed Assyria so completely that you have not heard of the Assyrian people since. Let's talk about that a minute. Who were these people, these Assyrians, and where are they now? Well, first, let's sketch out the very, very old world real quickly, because a lot of people don't understand how urban it was and how much like our own world it was. I always say it's like, it's like going and seeing a society that is an imitation of ours now. Some things are so similar, and then some things are so different. What's similar is the world situation. To me, if you look at a map of what I like to call the very, very old world, it looks a lot to me like a map of early 20th century Europe. To me, it looks like pre-World War I. You have a number of powerful states, some more than others, involved in all sorts of diplomacy with each other and alliances, and when they go to war, they often go to war as coalitions. You know, think of the Axis and the Allies in World War II, and that's very similar to what you often saw in the very, very old world. And if you wanted to try to figure out in that template which country of the early 20th century Europe Assyria represented, they're the Germans. And not for any moral reasons. They're the Germans for toughness reasons. The Germans have always had a reputation for being militarily tough throughout history, not just in the 20th century. Go talk to the Romans about how difficult the Germans were to deal with as a military opponent. And a lot of historians will tell you that the reason that the people who inhabit that area we call Germany are tough militarily is that Germany hasn't got a great number of natural frontiers. It's a hard area to defend. From a social Darwinian approach, you would say that the only people that would be able to stay around in that area would have to be a tough people. Well, the same thing is often pointed out about Assyria. Ancient Assyria had no natural frontiers that were good, and the people were living in an area that was usually a place that other countries walked through to go fight someone else. The only people that were going to survive in that area were going to be people that were extremely tough and very good warriors. And the Assyrians were. That's the main thing you have to understand is that this empire was a creation of a formidable race of people. And that its decline can be traced to the fact that there just weren't enough of those formidable people left. The armies of the early Assyrian empires were majority Assyrian. By the armies at the end of the empire, they look like the ancient imperial Roman armies by the end, where you have fewer and fewer and fewer Romans and a lot more mercenaries and people from the conquered subject folks. And when the country eventually falls, part of the reason is that there aren't enough of those people from that country defending it. Now, Assyria, in modern terms, was located in what's now northern Iraq. The final capital city of Nineveh is located right near modern Mosul. The city, the oil-rich city of Kirkuk, right where the Kurds are trying to form a permanent state, was part of the Assyrian heartland. The city where Saddam Hussein was born, Tikrit, was traditionally one of the one of the Assyrian frontier cities. Saddam Hussein, by the way, would have made a pretty standard Assyrian ruler. He might have been a lenient one. Now, the country to the south of Assyria was their great adversary throughout their whole history, the great state of Babylonia, with the capital city Babylon, down right around where modern Baghdad is. Babylonia, by the way, if you were going to do a top 10 cities 
in all human history is my pick for number one. It was a greater city longer than any other human civilization's city you can think of. Probably the first human habitation to go over the 200,000 people mark. At its height, maybe had twice as many as that. It's almost impossible, by the way, for us to envision how a civilization before modern sanitation and modern medicine and all that stuff was able to stay plague-free most of the time when you got that many human beings living that close to each other. But Babylon was a perfect example of one of those places that people don't ever think about when you think of the very, very old world. It's much more urban than you might imagine. And it is it wasn't just a few big cities, because Nineveh got to the 300,000 mark probably in terms of population too. There were a lot of medium-sized cities with walls and towers and, well, it was a lot more urban than you think. As a matter of fact, the very, very old world was probably more urban in a lot of ways than the very old world. The world that succeeded it in some ways was not as grand as the one before. If you want to get a little example of that, too, there's a wonderful work by a guy named Xenophon. He wrote a book, well, you can get it in the stores now, called The Persian Expedition. And it's a book that, um, well, has one of these Greek guys running into some cities from the very, very old world. You see, Xenophon was a commander of a group of Greek mercenaries that fought in a Persian civil war. They fought on the losing side, and when the, when the battle was over, the battle called Kunaxa, these 10,000 or so Greeks try to escape the Persian Empire and get back home with the Persian army fighting them the whole way. It's a great story. During part of the retreat, though, Xenophon and his Greeks, in about 400 BCE, encounter some enormous fortifications and enormous cities decomposing in the sand and he writes about them. And it's an amazing encounter between the rising power of human civilization 2.0 encountering the last vestiges of the greatness and grandeur that was the end of human civilization 1.0. I'm quoting from the middle of the piece, but remember that when Xenophon is writing this, it's about 400 BCE. Here's what he writes, quote, it had just, uh, they had just fought off another Persian attack. That's what leads up to this, this part. Quote, After suffering this defeat, the enemy retired, and the Greeks marched on safely for the rest of the day and reached the river Tigris. There was a large deserted city there called Larissa, which in the old days used to be inhabited by the Medes. It had walls 25 feet broad and 100 feet high, with a perimeter of six miles. It was built of bricks made of clay, with a stone base of 20 feet underneath. Later on, they came upon another city. Quote, From here, a day's march of 18 miles brought them to a large, undefended fortification near a city called Mespila, which was once inhabited by the Medes. The base of this fortification was made of polished stone, in which there were many shells. It was 50 feet broad and 50 feet high. On top of it was built a brick wall 50 feet in breadth and 100 feet high. The perimeter of the fortification was 18 miles. Now, Xenophon must have gone to the locals and asked them about these giant cities that were bigger than anything he had to go home to in Greece. And the locals told him probably all they could remember about them. They told him that they were Median cities and the Medes were the ones who were running that area just before 
the Persian Empire that they currently lived under, but they weren't Median cities. Those cities were Assyrian cities. The second one was Nineveh. And it had been 200 years since the fall of Nineveh. And Xenophon was describing a ghost city. He was looking at one of those human civilizations that had been erased. He was looking at, you know, the very, very old world's Statue of Liberty in the sand. And it was only 200 years since it had fallen, and nobody could tell Xenophon that these were Assyrian. They were already gone. And that's something historians will talk about today. When I was growing up, the consensus was that the Assyrian people were wiped out. Not necessarily at the end of these wars because the Persians were using Assyrian troops, but that once the power of these people were broken, they were never again a factor, and that sometime between the fall of Nineveh and now, the Assyrian people were submerged in the DNA of later conquerors. I mean, the, uh, the Arab invasions of Muhammad and his um, sons was considered to be a tidal wave of new DNA in the area that's just by Western historians assumed to have swamped the whole region. And yet there are people who still call themselves Assyrians today. I encountered one after I made the statement that there were no more Assyrians who sat me down and showed me all sorts of material that these people who call themselves Assyrians will tell you is evidence of their unbroken history since, you know, human civilization 1.0. And it's very convincing. But even after seeing all this evidence, I remember saying to the gentleman, come on. Think of how long ago that is. Think about how much has happened since that time. Can you really believe that you are the same people that were living in Nineveh in 600 BCE? And he said, Dan, the Jews are as ancient as we are. They're from that area. They had those invasions sweep over them. You don't doubt that they're a people, do you? The Kurds fit into all those categories and inhabit the very area that we're from. And you don't call them an extinct people, and you don't doubt their heritage, and I found that hard to argue with. What's more, if you go read some of the modern historians from that region and their writings, it seems as though we in the West maybe have a mistaken view of this, or maybe there's some cultural glasses that are blinding us from some of this stuff, because I just read something called Shadows in the Desert, a book by an Iranian professor. And he writes about these ancient peoples as though they're still there. He calls, for example, some of the tribes of the Kurds and some of the Iranian Azerbaijani people, he says they're the Medes. They're the natural descendants of the Medes. And that they're distinct still. That you can trace these elements. It's the kind of philosophy that would completely back what that Assyrian gentleman told me, that these people are still around. They're just shadows of their former selves. And the Assyrians were Semitic people, just like the Arabs, just like the Jews, just like the Egyptians. And the very, very old world pretty much had countries that were Semitic in nature or Indo-European in nature or some admixture of the two. The powers that mattered in that diplomatic world, what well, we already told you about Assyria, to the south of Assyria was the great land of Babylonia, 
and they pretty much controlled southern Iraq most of the time. To the west was the great state of Egypt, always wealthy, occupying one of the prime positions in the very, very old world, past its prime as a civilization by most of this period, but always a power. You could never discount Egypt. Northeast of Egypt, of course, you have the Holy Land, modern-day Syria, Jordan, Israel, places like that. And at this time, there were confederations of Aramean cities, there were Phoenician cities, there were, well, the biblical kingdoms of Israel and Judah were there for much of this time. This period, of course, the period where the old Hebrew Bible was composed and talks about. As a matter of fact, it was the Assyrians who defeated the kingdom of Israel and exiled the population, the way it often did with subject peoples, who became the lost tribes of Israel. The lost tribes of Israel would not have been lost had it not been for the Assyrians. In uh, Turkey, you had a succession of Indo-European states. You had the Hittites, and then you had the Phrygians, and then you had the Lydians, and at the very end of the period, you start to have those Greek civilizations cropping up in Ionia, which is on the coast of Asia Minor, the coast of Turkey. In modern-day Armenia, you had the Eurasians, an Indo-European mixed people that gave the Assyrians a lot of trouble. Above them, in the north, in what is now the Caucasus and all around southern Russia, you had all the beginnings of all these nomad barbarian horse archer people that would play a huge role in the very, very old world. As a matter of fact, they played a major role in the fall of it. The Scythians were up there, and we all know about them. The Assyrians, I believe, called them the Ishkazu. But there were an earlier people called the Cimmerians that the Scythians were pushing into the very, very old world. They played a big role. In modern-day Iran, the main people for most of this period was a fascinating group of people called the Elamites. And the Elamites were numerous and powerful and civilized, and they uh, were in some ways related to some of the Dravidian people of India. And they're extra fun because they seem to have an insanity strain of DNA running through the royal gene pool. And every now and then, just like when you'd be dealing a deck of cards, you'd run across a joker and have one of these Elamite rulers that was insane. Always made things interesting to study in the very, very old world when you turn the cards over and have an insane Elamite ruler. And the relationship between, like, Babylon and Assyria, I would compare to the relationship between France and Germany, historically speaking. They are historic enemies. They fought each other on and off, conquered each other on and off, admired each other in a sort of a envious way, on and off, for thousands of years. That's how long the very, very old world dynamic was at play. And it would be impossible and probably boring to go over all the ups and downs of the very, very old world. You can't do 2,500 years or 3,000 years of history and explain all the events, but you just have to imagine endless cycles of human history going forward. Endless diplomacy, endless wars, endless events, endless tragedies, endless natural disasters, endless... Well, you get the picture. The period, though where the very, very old world starts to reach the boiling point, when the pressures get to be so much that you get to the events that lead up to the fall of Nineveh, is where it gets dramatic. And where you get that Statue of Liberty sticking out of the sand moment that so fascinates me. And the interesting thing is, is if you want to talk about the fall of Assyria, the event that ends the very, very old world, you have to talk about Assyrian greatness. 
I am, for example, Sargon, the great king, the legitimate king, the king of the world, king of Assyria, king of the four rims of the earth, king of kings, prince without rival, he who rules from the upper sea to the lower sea. That could actually get quite a bit longer, too, when they were in the mood. And it should be pointed out that the Assyrians were not exactly modest. They thought of themselves as the most powerful people in the world, and the traditional title of their kings proves it. The funny thing and the interesting thing about Assyria is it did not have a long, slow decline, which Imperial Rome had, for example. Assyria fell like a stock market crash. Their greatest and most glorious period in their history was the period just before the fall. And it made the fall of Assyria one of those really unexpected events. I've often wondered if the people that were involved in destroying Nineveh and Assyria could believe what was happening. They were wiping out a 2,000-year-old civilization and one that had recently been the most powerful in all world history, the biblical-era Nazis, the ones who had an army that was as dominant over their enemies as the Imperial Roman was over theirs or as the United States military is over theirs today, over their competitors today. So how did it happen? Well, first of all, let's understand some of these wonderful Assyrian kings that made up the last great list of rulers. See, the Assyrians had a problem, just like all the people from ancient Mesopotamia had. They always had problems turning over the kingship when the king died in an unbroken fashion. When Assyrian rulers died, as often as not, you had some major struggle over who's going to get the throne, which son will be the successor, and sometimes which plotter will throw the dynasty over in a coup. A great many Assyrian kings are killed by their children. Civil war was a problem forever. Revolts, civil war, and dynastic struggles were probably the biggest enemy Assyria ever had. The sons of kings did more damage to the Assyrian state probably than any of their enemies, but it opened the door to what happened at Nineveh. The last line of kings goes something like this. There was a terrible palace coup somewhere around the 700s BC era. Between 700 and 800 BCE, there was a palace coup that you could compare to the what happened to the Russian royal family when the Bolsheviks took over in 1917. The entire royal family is wiped out and a general named Tiglath-Pileser III, or that's the name he took, one of those wonderful Assyrian titles, took over the reins of the state. And he reorganized the Assyrian army into its final form before its fall, into the most sophisticated army the ancient world has ever seen. And this is what first got me interested in the Assyrians. As a military history buff, when you study military history, you always have to go deeper in time. Because whatever military is interesting you at the time, you end up looking at how it got the way it did, and it's always influenced by an earlier army. So when you keep going back into history, eventually you end up in Assyria because the Assyrian military was the first great military in history. 
the first one to have all the different arms that you would think of, the combined arms, the first one to have a general staff, the first one to really put large numbers of troops in the field. Routinely, if you believe the numbers, Assyrians were putting 50,000-man armies into the field at a time. They may have been able to raise 300,000 men across the entire empire. Think about the logistics, by the way, of 50,000 people in the field. That's like your average football stadium. Imagine feeding and watering and supplying and maintaining that many people across marches of hundreds of miles, the medical train you'd have to have after the battles. I mean, it's mind-boggling to think about what these ancient people were capable of. Not just that, the Assyrian military was thoroughly modern in a lot of respects. They were more well-trained and drilled than any army up to the time of Alexander. And they may have been much more well-drilled than some of Alexander's troops. They had the best infantry that the Middle East has ever produced. Ever. If you say that, you know, you can look at all the great armies in Middle Eastern history, and the one thing most of them are lacking are good infantry. Wonderful cavalry a lot of times, but, but usually the infantry is subpar. The Assyrian infantry was fantastic. A lot of the times they would operate spearmen and archer units together so that the spearmen, who were as good as Greek hoplites but better trained, could handle one role if the enemy would come into contact with them. The archers were there to be flexible if the enemy wouldn't come into contact with them. The Assyrians had a wonderful core of chariotry throughout their whole history. Very colorful, biblical thing. And the chariots were, by the end of the Assyrian Empire, big, big machines. Something like an ancient version of a tank, if you will. Drawn by four horses, three or four fighting men inside each one. Imagine 500 or more of these machines lined up wheel to wheel and then taking off across some plain at 10 or 15 miles per hour. Those inside the chariot shooting every step of the way and then eventually at the other end of the plane running into a line of human beings standing in a close formation. You can only imagine what that must have been like. And the wheels of these Assyrian chariots by the end were more than six feet high and they were studded with metal studs. And when you read about one of these attacks on Elam, the Assyrian king makes it clear that you have to have the metal studs because uh, otherwise you'll slip and slide in all the blood and gore that the chariots have created. But the thing about the Assyrian army that was most feared was their cavalry. And there are many references to the Assyrians in the old Hebrew Bible. And it's plain that the cavalry was something that was most feared. I believe the Bible calls it a whirlwind or a thunderbolt. See, because the Assyrians had the first regular cavalry in human history. By that I mean regular as in drilled and organized by modern standards. And that cavalry was probably put together to deal with the first horse archers that were appearing in human history. As we said, there were Scythians and there were people called Chimerians, who you probably would not have been able to tell the difference between, that first appeared in the very, very old world and started overthrowing some of these nation-states we told you about earlier. What overthrew the Urartians eventually? These Chimerians. What overthrew the successor Hittite states? Probably the Chimerians. These barbarian horse archers that swept out of southern Russia must have been the most impossible military threat for the civilized world to deal with. Certainly the worst since the old Aryan invasions of millennia before. 
And a lot of historians will tell you that the Assyrians deserve credit for saving civilization from these people. Because the Assyrians were the only military power that had the strength and the flexibility and the army to blunt these invasions. I mean, what would have happened had the Cimmerians broken in to the Fertile Crescent when that first big invasion happened? All human history would be different. I guarantee you the other states of the area would not have been able to deal with the Cimmerians. You would have had an invasion of horse peoples that would have settled down. Well, they would have ended human civilization 1.0 at that time. And the Assyrian kings, um, Sargon II, one of their great ones, he died fighting those people. Actually leading the army in his chariot, believed to have been shot down by an arrow in a battle that was so harsh that the king's body may have stayed and rotted on the battlefield. It's always a bad sign in ancient history if they find the remains or hear that the king's body rotted on the battlefield because it means that the army of the king was so damaged it couldn't do anything about that. But the Assyrians seem to have blunted the Cimmerians from destroying the Fertile Crescent. And a lot of historians will say, see, there you go. Sure, they were brutal, but they kept civilization going. It's easy for us to say that now. The problem is, is that when the Assyrians were conducting all these raids against their enemies and all these attacks and were experiencing and, and dishing out all the damage, the people that they were damaging were taking note. I mean, listen to what the son of Sargon II, we just told you about him, a guy named Sennacherib, listen to what he did to Babylon, the permanent troublemaker in Assyrian history. The Assyrians had always played, by the way, with kid gloves when actually dealing with the city of Babylon, because the city of Babylon was the cultural center of the very, very old world. A lot of historians have compared the relationship of Babylon and Assyria to one of Greece and Rome. You know how the Romans adopted so much of Greek civilization? The Romans were the military superior ones, but they, were, they, they took the statue-making ideas, and the literature looked a lot like the Greeks, and the architecture looked a lot like the Greeks. There was a real admiration for Greek culture, and the Romans had a feeling, just like the other Greeks did, about Athens. Well, the Assyrians kind of felt that way about Babylon, and if you look at the Assyrians, they look a heck of a lot like the Babylonians, don't they? Well, that's because they admired that whole culture, and it was superior to Assyrian culture. And it had saved Babylon from the fate many other cities routinely got from the Assyrians. Same way Athens had sort of a get-out-of-jail-free card in Greece. But Sennacherib finally had had it. He put a guy on the throne of Babylon he thought he could trust. And even he rebelled. So Sennacherib decided to destroy Babylon, and this is what he said he did to it. As a hurricane proceeds, I attacked it, and like a storm I overthrew it. Its inhabitants, young and old, I did not spare, and with their corpses I filled the streets of the city. The town itself and its houses, from their foundations to their roofs, I devastated, I destroyed. By fire I overthrew, in order that in future even the soil of its temples would be forgotten. By water I ravaged it, I turned it into a pasture. He said to quiet the heart of Asher, my lord, that people should bow in submission before his exalted might, I removed the soil of Babylon for presence to the most distant peoples, and I stored up some of it in a covered jar. Now, historian Gwen Dyer has said that when Sennacherib destroyed Babylon, he did it as thoroughly as a nuclear bomb would have. 
you know, the difference between the ancient world and the modern one is the same stuff could be done. It just took human muscle power to do it. The people that Sennacherib killed, he did by hand, with muscle and sinew in a process that must have taken a long time and been very physically difficult for the people that had to do it. He diverted a river over Babylon. He put salt and thorny plants in the soil so nothing would grow. He pulled the walls down. He burned the city. He did things that the Babylonians would remember. And the terror policy the Assyrians used to keep foreign peoples down embittered them. If you could do a top ten list of the most hated civilizations in world history, Assyria is going to be right up there. The biblical version of the Nazis, as I said. And the Assyrians did it for reasons other than security. The Assyrians kept their neighbors down and then abused them. You know, knocked them down and then took their pocketbook, which further embittered them. Because the Assyrian army, besides being a tool to defend this state, you know, in this indefensible area, to protect their people from being overrun, they used the army as a tool of piracy as well. This is the thing. The Assyrians invented how you deal with empires, and the number one rule they had was make the army and make war pay. And every year, the Assyrians would take the army out, and if they didn't have some big battle to fight with some real enemy, they'd go and they would just loot their neighbors and take their stuff. And this became an addiction. Even if the Assyrians had wanted to run a different kind of empire, it became important to have the army stealing all this stuff every year for the economy to thrive. Listen to what one little teeny raid against one insignificant opponent netted for the Assyrian state, and you'll get an idea of how that army we talked about earlier was completely wrapped up in the dealings of the state. Forty chariots with men and horses. Four hundred and sixty horses broken to the yoke. 120 pounds of silver, 120 pounds of gold, 6,000 pounds of lead, 6,000 pounds of copper, 18,000 pounds of iron, 1,000 vessels of copper, 2,000 pans of copper, assorted bowls and cauldrons of copper, 1,000 brightly colored garments of wool, assorted wooden tablets and couches made of ivory and overlaid with gold from the ruler's palace, 2,000 head of cattle, 5,000 sheep, 15,000 slaves, assorted daughters of noblemen with dowries, and the ruler's sister. The ruler's successor was required by Assyria to pay an annual tribute of a thousand sheep, two thousand bushels of grain, two pounds of gold, twenty-six pounds of silver. That's called making war pay. One Assyrian king took the army out in the field almost every year of his thirty-year reign because he had to. They needed stuff. Now, the end of Assyria was partially as a result of its success. You see, the Assyrians, in waging all these wars for all these reasons, ended up beating down some of the most powerful of the peoples in the Middle East. There were ferocious and numerous tribes that the Assyrians battered for centuries into submission. The Elamites are a perfect example of a group of people that were very strong and that the Assyrians eventually tore apart. It took a long time, lifetimes. 
There have been historians who have suggested that all these wars that the Assyrians fought against their enemies, the endless conflicts, ended up doing what one historian called breaking the Middle East to the leash of empire. In other words, the people that the Assyrians battered into submission stayed submitted even after the Assyrians were gone. The Persian Empire that succeeded the Assyrians has often been called a lenient empire. They didn't have to be as brutal as the Assyrians were. And the reason they didn't have to be as brutal as the Assyrians were is because the people the Assyrians were trying to hold down had been smashed by the time the Persians were around. I've actually heard that one of the reasons Alexander the Great's invasions of Persia went so easily is because the Middle East was never the same after the Assyrians broke all these powerful, formidable peoples. And yet, breaking these peoples unleashed you know, the genie from the bottle, because there were other powerful peoples that were behind the people that the Assyrians were smashing, that they exposed once those, you know, intervening peoples were beaten. For example, when the Assyrians finally smashed Elam, the Elamites, a new people moved into that area because the Elamites were not there to prevent them from doing it, a people called the Medes, who you've heard about. With them were another tribe related to them called the Persians, and they moved into old Elam and their capital at Ekbatana and merged with the Elamites and became a formidable people. This is the beginning of the Assyrian downfall. There was a Median king called Caesares. Caesares is traditionally credited with changing the various Iranian tribes from city-states like ancient Greece with Athens and Sparta and all that into a unified state, Medea. And when Medea first appears on the scene, they begin troubling the Assyrians in ways that the Assyrians had not been troubled in a long time. And the Assyrians had set themselves up for this because right around when, the, when Caesares is forming a unified state from a bunch of city-states that were giving Assyria trouble, the Assyrians finally decide to go do something they've been thinking about for a long time and, and attack Egypt. Sennacherib, we told you about him a minute ago, um, he was assassinated by his sons. Tradition says he had his brains bashed out from behind while praying, and the uh, murder weapon were some religious icons, and the Babylonians considered this to be payback for Sennacherib destroying Babylon. Eventually, uh, one of the sons, who was supposedly not involved in the assassination, a guy named Esharadon, takes over. And Esharadon does that thing that all the Assyrians have thought about recently, but didn't do, and he attacks Egypt. And he takes Egypt. But now he gets Assyria bogged down. Assyria, being the first major empire, fell into every single one of the traps of empire. And the main one was overextension. And Egypt was the straw that broke the camel's back because it was so far away from the major operations in the very, very old world's heartland that it kept the big Assyrian army tied down a lot of the time. And whenever they were over dealing with the rebellions that always happened in Egypt, people started rebelling close by to Assyria. And the terror policy was making more enemies than it was helping. And now these Medes had become a unified people. Well, in 615, it all comes to a head. In 615, the Medes move against the Assyrians. Now, to get an idea of how fast Assyria's fortunes changed, 
You can read the things that Ashurbanipal was writing early on in his reign, and they are confident and superior. He has the same sort of an attitude that all these Assyrians have. But by the end of his reign, he sounds like the world is falling on his head. Listen to what Ashurbanipal wrote near the end of his reign. I did well unto God and man, to dead and living. Why have sickness and misery befallen me? I cannot do away with the strife in my country and the dissensions in my family. Disturbing scandals oppress me always. Illness of mind and flesh bow me down. With cries of woe I bring my days to an end. On the day of the city god, the day of the festival, I am wretched. Death is seizing hold upon me and bears me down. With lamentation and mourning I wail day and night. The situation has changed for the last great king of the Assyrians. And the records, the diplomatic and foreign policy records for Assyria end ominously in 640. And I had one professor suggest that the reason that they may have ended so suddenly may not have been due to any sort of cutoff, but because when Nineveh fell, maybe the records were cleansed of embarrassing information by the people that destroyed Nineveh. But when Ashurbanipal died, the normal problems of the succession arose, and his sons began fighting with each other for who got to be the king. This happened all the time in Assyrian history. And the army would often split itself and fight itself for the sons of the king. In the same way that the Imperial Roman Army's most devastating enemy was another Imperial Roman Army during the Civil Wars, the same thing happened in Assyria after Ashurbanipal died. And yet, this was not a time when Assyria could afford it. Because when one of those young princes finally defeated his brother, the army he had now was a weakened army. And he had major coalitions of enemies who hated their guts, ready to strike. The major one being this new coalition of people into a single unified people, the Medes. In 615, Caesare attacks Assyria. Now, he is thwarted in his attack, but a year later he comes back. And this time he manages to destroy the ancient religious center of Assyria and the old capital at Ashur. This is a bad sign. And it exposes something that no one in the very, very old world had quite been prepared for. And that's that Assyria was vulnerable to ultimate defeat. The Babylonians, who were always ready to attack Assyria, noticed how well the Medes were doing and started to freak out, thinking, okay, if Assyria's going to fall, we want pieces of it. We don't want the Medes to get all the credit and all the stuff. They joined up and allied with the Median army under the ruined walls of Asher, it's said. Kayazari is giving his daughter to the Babylonian king in the traditional cementing of an alliance. And after they ally, the final nail in the coffin of Assyria is when the group of people that they're expecting to save them from this predicament, the Scythian barbarian horse archers, instead stab the Assyrian state in the back and join forces with Kayazari's and his Medes and the Babylonians, and they all move on Nineveh in 612. After several battles are fought in front of the walls, after a siege of three months, Nineveh falls to this coalition of allies. The holocaust of the fall of Nineveh must have been the nightmare of all nightmares for the people who lived there. The Medes treated it the same way the Assyrians would have treated a Median city. Legend has it that the last Assyrian king gathered all of his precious stuff around him 
and set it on fire with him in the middle of it and burned himself to death as the allied armies were breaking down the walls of Nineveh. They destroyed the city to a point where modern archaeologists have gone there and found the ruins of the potteries and the glazed bricks and the other debris thrown in the moat to facilitate attacking the walls. They found the breaches in the walls. They have found the dead bodies with defensive stab wounds on the arms and the fatal stab wounds in the torsos all around the city. The evidence of fire and a heat so hot that glass might have melted. And the destruction was so complete and so unexpected that the people in that era must have been blinking like it was the light of a new day, like Sauron had been thrown down and now a new world beckoned, maybe human civilization 2.0. One thing's for sure. Nobody was crying for poor Assyria. The biblical prophets who supposedly predicted Assyria's downfall wrote her epitaph. And it shall come to pass, and all that look upon thee shall flee from thee, and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? There shall the fire devour thee. The sword shall cut thee off. It shall eat thee up like a canker worm. There is no healing of thy bruise. Thy wound is grievous. All that hear the bruit of thee shall clap their hands over thee. For upon whom hath not thy wickedness past continually. What they're saying, of course, is you're getting what you deserve and everyone's happy about it. And 200 years later, when Xenophon saw Nineveh, nobody around him could even tell him it was Assyrian. Makes you wonder if someday, if they find the Statue of Liberty sticking partway out of the sand, if anyone will be able to tell you what civilization that came from. It's almost impossible to imagine, isn't it? And yet, I'd bet you any amount of money that there wasn't anyone in Assyria who saw the fall of Nineveh coming. Hi, everyone. Dan here with a quick message about Hardcore History Programming. We've read your emails, and we know you'd like more Hardcore History than you're getting. And Lord knows we have tried to speed the process up. But these giant programs that we do, like the one we did today, just seem to take about 45 days. There's not much we can do to speed that process up. So Ben and I thought about it, and we figured out what we think might be a hack around that problem. It involves just giving you more stuff. And different stuff. Some people have said, well, can't you just cut down on the sound effects and the production and give us stuff more often? Well, there's a lot of people who like that stuff. But there's no reason we can't give you more hardcore history snippets between the hardcore history we give you now. You know, nothing instead of, just more stuff in addition to. Besides that, there are other ideas on ways we can do these programs. Again, not instead of the stuff you like, in addition to the stuff you like that allows us to get stuff out faster. For example have something special planned for the next show. It's not like anything we've ever done, and it's not going to be instead of stuff we always do. It's just something to add to the mix, our attempt to get you more stuff than once every 45 or so days. Now, your feedback is the only way we know how things are being received on the listener's end, so please tell us what you think and realize we have a bunch of ideas 
that we hope will add to what you already like about hardcore history. And if I haven't told you lately, Ben and I can't thank you enough for your support and the fact that you enjoy listening to this. Thanks a ton. Thanks to everyone for posting comments about the show on iTunes. They help get the program noticed. If you would like to help spread the word about hardcore history, vote for the show on podcastalley.com. Get more hardcore history at dancarlin.com. Also check out Dan's political show, Common Sense. If you think the show you just heard is worth a dollar, Dan and Ben would love to have it. A buck a show. It's all we ask. Go to dancarlin.com for information on how to donate to the show.